0: I want to invite you to open your Bibles to Romans chapter 12. We are continuing uh, a short series of messages exploring our mission and our vision. Our mission we looked at two weeks ago, our mission, the reason that Jesus... Uh, left us behind when He returned to heaven was that we would make Him known, that we would live as His ambassadors, that we would, uh, we would go baptizing and teaching others, uh, making disciples. And so God has left us here. Uh, Christ has left us here to live as his missionary people, his ambassadors. And uh, what will that look like as we faithfully follow Jesus in that mission? Well, last week we looked at uh, the fact that we're called to grow deeper in intimacy with Christ, that grounded in the gospel and what he accomplished on the cross and empowered by his spirit, the, the presence of God indwelling us, that we would grow to love Christ more, that we would grow to know Christ more, that we would grow more faithfully, uh, to more faithfully follow Him. Uh, grounded in the gospel and empowered by the Spirit, those aren't things that we do uh, on our own by our own strength, it's something that is produced in us as we lean on the good news and rely on the Spirit to work in us. This morning, we're turning to the second part of our vision, and, and that is that we want to be a community of, of men and women, young and old, who are are uh, growing closer in relationships with one another, that God has called us into. He has formed us to be a community of His people. He's brought us into relationships, and so that's where we're going to go this morning, looking at Romans 12, 1 to 8. Now, uh, I want to read something to you. I've shared this before. It's been a few years, so maybe some of you have forgotten. Perhaps some of you have never heard of this. But even if you have, I, I trust you'll enjoy it. I think it can be helpful to us as we think about uh, the reality of being called in a community, of being uh, brought into relationships with one another. It's called the parenthood test. Anyone remember this? This is how to know whether or not you are ready to have children. Uh, a number of tests are a part of this. The mess test. Smear peanut butter on the sofa and curtains. Now rub your hands in the wet flower bed and rub on the walls. Cover the stains with crayons. Place a fish stick behind the couch and leave it there for a year the toy test buy a really big box of Lego if this is not available you may substitute roofing tax have a friend spread them all over the house put on a blindfold now try to walk barefoot to the bathroom or kitchen do not scream because this could wake a child at night supermarket test borrow one or two small animals goats are best and take them with you as you shop always keep them in sight and pay for anything they eat or damage The afternoon nap test. Lie down on your bed after a big Sunday lunch and ask a friend to sit with you, and as soon as you nod off, to pour yogurt in your ear. The car test. Break a ripe watermelon into a mush and throw it all over your dashboard, gear lever, steering wheel, and new leather upholstery. The dressing test. Go to a fish shop and buy a large, unhappy live octopus. Try to stuff it into a small net bag, making sure that all its arms stay inside. The feeding test, take a large plastic milk jug, fill halfway with water, suspend from the ceiling with a stout cord, start the jug swinging, try to insert spoonfuls of soggy porridge into the mouth of the jug while pretending to be an airplane. Now dump the contents of the jug onto the floor. The night test, prepare by obtaining a small cloth bag and fill it with four to six kilograms of sand. Soak it thoroughly in water. At 8 p.m., begin to waltz and hum with the bag until 9 p.m. Put the bag down and set your alarm for 10 p.m. Wake up and pick up your bag and sing every song you have ever heard. Make up about a dozen more. Sing these until 4 a.m. Set the alarm clock for 5 a.m. Get up and make breakfast. Keep this up for five years and look cheerful. <laughs> the physical test for women take one large beanbag chair and attach it to the front of your clothes. Leave it there for nine months. Now remove 10 of the beans. Physical test for men, go to the nearest drugstore, put your wallet on the counter, ask the clerk to help himself. Now go to the nearest supermarket, arrange for your entire salary to be directly deposited to the store. Purchase a newspaper, go home, and read it quietly for the last time. And the final assignment, find a couple who already have a small child. Lecture them on how they can improve their discipline, patience, tolerance, toilet training, and child's table manners. Suggest many ways they can improve. Emphasize that they should never allow their children to run wild enjoy this experience. It will be the last time you have all the answers. For those of you who are parents, you know that becoming a parent introduces massive changes to your life. Your your world is invaded by this new person, and then person after person after person. I remember so clearly the moment that our oldest son was born. Uh, I, I knew that Chrisline was pregnant i knew that we were expecting but there was something in that moment when i saw him for the first time it just hit me our, our life was being invaded by a, a new relationship like it wasn't just crystalline and myself anymore and his arrival and the arrival of every one of, of every one of our sons after that introduced massive changes to our lives That is also true when we put our faith in Jesus. When we enter into a relationship with Jesus, our life changes in huge ways, in lots of ways, actually. But the one that we're going to focus on this morning is in this area of relationships. When we put our faith in Jesus, we have not only a relationship with Jesus, but we have a relationship with the people of God, with others who are in relationship with Jesus. He brings us into His people, His family. And our lives are, are massively changed. We're brought into community. Uh, we're brought into a, a whole sphere of relationships. We become part of the church, uh, both universally but also locally, of necessity, uh, with God's people in the place where you are. It is profoundly unbiblical to think that you can simply have a personal relationship with Jesus uh, while not also uh, entering into relationship with the church, with a local community of believers. It's not biblical. It's not being obedient to what Scriptures clearly call us to. Now, this morning, we are going to be unpacking A second part of our vision that that as we want to grow in faithfulness in in what God has called us to, that involves us growing closer in relationships with one another, growing to love one another and care for one another and serve one another and get to know one another, to be a family together, connecting as community, as the people of God. Uh, And we will see that in Christ, our lives are not our own, we belong to Him. But not only to Him, we also belong, as our text will make clear, we belong to one another. Our lives are massively changed because there's a whole network of relationships that come when we come to Christ. Now before uh, we turn to our text and I read it, uh, a few things I want to say about uh, Romans and uh, what Paul is doing here. The Apostle Paul is writing to a church in Rome, a church that he did not found, a church that he has not yet met. He hasn't visited them. He wants to. He plans to go to them, uh, but he hasn't yet. And so he's writing them, and unlike most of Paul's other letters, this letter, the letter to the Romans, is not uh, written on the occasion of some big problem in the church. Uh, Most of the letters Paul writes, he's addressing some issue, some challenge, some problem. Not here. Here he is providing... Uh, them with his most carefully worked out explanation of the gospel of of Christian teaching John Stott says this it is the fullest plainest, and grandest statement of the gospel in the New Testament uh, chapters one to eleven of Romans uh, Paul really is 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 very theological in that it, it's proclaiming who God is uh, proclaiming that the reality the truth of humanity and our sin, our rebellion, our lostness, our inability to fix what's broken. It's a proclamation of what God has done through Christ, that Christ came and on the cross bore the penalty for our sin, that through faith in him we are redeemed, we are adopted, we are transferred from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. Through faith in him we become new creatures and we live out that reality. Uh, Chapters 1 to 11 has really just been about the gospel. It's it's been this grand story of what uh, our problem is, who God is, and how God has rectified that. Now at chapter 12, Romans shifts in a significant way from the theology of the gospel, if you will, to the practical outworking of it. And so we're picking things up right as the the letter shifts. So Romans 12, I'm going to read verses 1 to 8. Here's how Paul would say the gospel that he has proclaimed manifests itself. This is how it's worked out in our lives practically. Romans 12, verses 1 to 8. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifice, as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. We have different gifts according to the grace given to each of us. If your gift is prophesying, then prophesy in accordance with your faith. If it is serving, then serve. If it is teaching, then teach. If it is to encourage, then give encouragement. If it is giving, then give generously. If it is to lead, do it diligently. If it is to show mercy, do it cheerfully. We'll leave off right there. Uh, There there is much that can be explored in this text, and we won't be able to unpack all of the details. But what I want to do... Is ask four questions with you in the time we have together. First, what is foundational to the Christian life? That'll be just a brief one. What is foundational? Second, what is the essence of the Christian life? Third, what is antithetical to the Christian life? And fourth, what is the context of the Christian life? So, first, what is foundational to the Christian life? Our text begins with the word therefore. I've said this to you before and sounds a little cheesy, but it can be helpful. Uh, whenever we see a therefore, we should ask what the therefore is there for. Uh, it is pointing us back to what Paul has been proclaiming over the last 11 chapters. In fact, he exp- makes that explicit when he says, Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, in view of God's mercy, in view of the gospel, in view of what is true uh, about about God and about humanity, the holiness of God, humanity's rebellion against God, and the redemptive work in Christ. In in view of that, in view of God's mercy, the gospel that I've proclaimed, uh, we just think back, Romans 3, in, in light of the fact that Jews and Gentiles are alike under the power of sin, that there is no one righteous, not even one. Uh, he points back to what he says in Romans 4. No one will be declared righteous in God's sight by works of the law. Romans 5, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. When we, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to Him through the death of His Son. Romans 6, you have been set free from sin and have become slaves to righteousness. On and on, Paul has proclaimed the, the truth about God and about us and what God has done through Christ to reconcile us to the Father. And here he says, Therefore, therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, in view of the gospel that I have proclaimed, because of all that is true, it is so important for us to, to recognize that. He is pointing them to what is foundational to Christian life. He is pointing them to what God has done through Christ what God has done to redeem them through Christ and the outpouring of His Spirit and the new life that is theirs through Jesus. The gospel is foundational to the Christian life. The gospel, that's why in our vision we say grounded in the gospel, empowered by the Spirit. Paul is pointing them to what God has done. If you're not a believer in Jesus and you're with us today, I just want to challenge you with this, because so many people who don't know Jesus think that being a Christian is about being good enough, that it is about getting our spiritual act together to follow Jesus. I've heard many people who don't know Jesus say, well, I'm not good enough, or I can never go to the church. And I just want to say the gospel proclaimed in in the book of romans and throughout scripture is the message that that humanity all of us jew and gentile like we're all lost we're all in sin we have all rebelled against god we are his enemies and none of us can fix what's broken we can't rectify that situation but god in his love and his mercy sent jesus his son to bear the penalty for us so that through faith in him our sins are forgiven Through faith in Him, we are clothed with His perfection. We are adopted as daughters and sons. We are brought into relationship with Him and also into relationship with one another as God's people. And so that is available to all through faith in Jesus. Becoming a Christian doesn't mean cleaning yourself up. It means coming as you are and saying, Jesus, you are my only hope, and and giving your life, surrendering your life to Him. And so you can do that today if you don't know Jesus. But that, we need to know, that is foundational to the Christian life, is, uh, is the gospel, the good news, what God has done. Question two, what is the essence of the Christian life? As we move forward, Paul employs a very interesting, somewhat odd, interesting metaphor to describe the Christian life. He says, Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice. Now, before we turn to that idea of a living sacrifice, let me say a few things about this phrase offer your bodies. In the Greco-Roman context into which Paul speaks these words, he's writing to a predominantly Gentile church, uh, these words would have sounded strange. In the Greco-Roman mindset, bodies were insignificant. Bodies were, uh, when you thought about spiritual things, bodies were unimportant. They were to be sloughed off. They, they were a prison to escape. All that really mattered spiritually was the, the inner person, the soul, Uh, That mindset actually contributed to a lot of the ethical problems that Paul encountered uh, as he planted churches among the Gentiles. Uh, Think of Corinth. In Corinth, in the church, men in the church, believers in Christ, were going to prostitutes and they were arguing for the right to do that, saying, It's just our bodies. What's the big deal? And Paul's like, ah, you don't understand salvation. Christ is not just saving your souls. Christ is saving you as whole people. Your bodies matter. Your bodies matter. The created realm is good. God is saving ensouled bodies, if you will, us as whole beings. As bizarre as that might seem, Christ, when he returns, will resurrect our bodies. They will be changed. We read that in 1 Corinthians 15, but we will be saved. Embodied. So Paul, what he says here, he urges his readers to offer their bodies to God as a living sacrifice. Now, he's not just saying, just just offer your body. This is a way of him challenging their mindset. He's saying that being a Christian is, is more than simply giving mental assent to a set of beliefs. It is about giving oneself fully, entirely, the whole of who you are to God. We are enfleshed souls, if you will, embodied souls and soul bodies. Uh, our, our souls, who we are, uh, act in the world through our bodies. Our, our hearts act in the world through our bodies. We can't separate, and God is not asking us to. He's saying, give your whole self all that you are, including your body. This is Paul's way of saying the entirety of who you are. Offer the entirety of who you are to God. Offer everything to Him. Now let's return back to the idea of this living sacrifice. In Paul's day, virtually everyone would have been very familiar with the notion of sacrificing, both within the Jewish world, but also in the pagan world. Animal sacrifices were a pretty normal thing. Even in the pagan world, this would have been familiar. Paul here speaks of offering our bodies as a living sacrifice. Now that's an odd metaphor if you think about it. These two words don't fit together. Living... And sacrifice, living means alive, breathing, right? Alive, we get that. Sacrifice, they would have all known this, a sacrifice means you kill it. You slit its throat, it bleeds out, usually at the foot of the altar, and then you you burn this thing up. I mean, it's dead. That's sacrifice. So he's saying offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, living dead thing. Like, how does that fit together, Paul? It really, we've heard this so, so often, we're so familiar with it, that we may miss that, but it's jarring. It's completely foreign. Paul is saying that the Christian life, in its essence, is to be a living sacrifice, a living killing, an alive thing that's dead. How does that fit? Well, I want to say this. Paul is contending that the Christian life is both like and unlike a regular sacrifice. Think with me. It's unlike a regular sacrifice in two ways. First, a regular sacrifice... Uh, was bloody. An animal was killed. Its blood was poured out. And and why? For atonement. In fact, uh, in the, the letter to the Hebrews, we read this, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. So no blood, no forgiveness. So a normal sacrifice, there was blood shed for forgiveness, for atonement. But the Christian life is not like that in that we don't live for God in order to have our sins atoned for. Uh, our lives aren't a sacrifice to Him so that uh, we are made right with Him. We don't live for him, for him so that He'll forgive us. We are forgiven and loved and redeemed freely through Jesus. Now, Jesus went onto the cross. Jesus bled for us. Through Jesus' shed blood, our sins are atoned for. But, but our lives as followers of Christ, uh, as living sacrifices, we are not atoning for our own sin. So that's not what Paul's saying. It's, it's unlike a sacrifice in that way. Second, a regular sacrifice. Here's another way in which us living as a living sacrifice is different. Uh, a regular sacrifice was something that you finished, that you completed, right? You, you took the animal, you went to the altar, you, you <laughs> slit its throat, it bled out, you put it on the altar, it was generally burnt up, and, and then you were done, and you'd walk away. Your sacrifice was over. But a living sacrifice has this nasty tendency of, of wanting to crawl off the altar. It's never over, right? A living sacrifice is a sacrifice that is ongoing, continually, never-ending, day by day, moment by moment. And so, living our lives as a, a living sacrifice is different from a regular sacrifice in that way. How is uh, the Christian life like a regular sacrifice? What's well, like a, a normal sacrifice in that Christian life does involve death. Not it involves the death of Christ for us. Talked about that, but it also involves our own death, of sorts. A death to self. A death to self-centeredness. Death to self-determination. We read in Scripture this idea that we have the right to be master of our own fate, to determine what is best, that we belong to ourselves, that we are in control. That dies when we come to Christ. Listen to what Jesus says in Mark 8. Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. Galatians 2.20, Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. When we put our faith in Christ, our life, our control, our autonomy to call the shots, our, our life, our, our control to, to live a life for ourselves in a self-centered way, that, that dies. We're called to deny ourselves. We're, we're no longer alive, but Christ lives in us. Our, the life we live is Christ living his life in us. Sometimes our language within the evangelical world can lead us astray. We, we often talk about, you've heard, I'm sure, maybe we've used this language, of we, we give our hearts to Jesus. But the truth is, Jesus wants more than our hearts. Jesus calls for everything. He, he calls us to give everything, our whole lives, as a living sacrifice, to give up our Our right to call the shots, to give up our self-centeredness, to give up control, to give up our autonomy, to give Him everything, the entirety of who we are. That's what we're called to. The call to Christ is a call to die. It's a call to crawl up on the altar and remain there every day, moment by moment by moment for Him, to give ourselves fully, every aspect of who we are, to Christ. To give Him your hopes, to give Him your dreams, to give Him your plans, to give Him your agenda. To lay down your life on the altar for Him. Knowing, of course, that Jesus has done that for you. That Jesus uh, crawled up onto a cross and bled and died for you. He forsake everything for you to redeem you. The essence of the Christian life is the entirety of who a person is surrendered to Jesus. Fully, perpetually, day by day, moment by moment, for his purposes, for his will, for his glory. In Christ, your life, my life, is is not yours. It's not mine. It's a living sacrifice. It's, It's his. The essence of the Christian life is complete, total, perpetual surrender. It leads us to question three. What is antithetical to the Christian life? In in verse 2, Paul writes this, Do not conform to the pattern of this world. Do not conform to the pattern of this world. The late author and English professor David Foster Wallace made famous a joke about uh, some fish. Two young fish were swimming along, and as they swam along, they encountered an older fish, and he said, morning, boys, how's the water? The two young fish kept swimming, and after a few minutes, one of them looked at the other one and said, what the heck is water? The the point, of course, is that those things that should be most obvious to us are often things that we have a hard time seeing or recognizing. Paul says, do not conform to the pattern of the world. We need to stop and say, what what is the pattern of the world? What is the the water in which we find ourselves? Because it's so easy for us to be impacted by the culture around us, to be conformed into the pattern of the world that we don't even recognize it. Alan Noble, in a book called You Are Not Your Own, he writes this, these sobering, convicting words. If everyone in America started attending church, I doubt that any of the major issues facing our society would be resolved we'd probably find ourselves just as unwell and just as burned out. The only real difference is that we'd have an evangelical spin to our counseling and our programs of self-improvement. You see, Christians in America are carriers of the contemporary disease too. He's saying that the church has been conformed to the pattern of this world, that we are sick in the same ways, in many of the same ways, that our culture is around us. Now, we can debate whether or not Alan is right, but that's the point he's making, that we... We haven't even recognized the water that we're in. That we, in fact, have been conformed to the pattern of this world. So what is that pattern? What is it that we are not to conform to? I'm not going to pretend to be able to give a fully-orbed answer to this very important, significant question. But I do want us to give some thought to it. And I think Noble is on to something. The central thread of his book is that Western civilization has bought into the modern idea that we are all autonomous creatures that self-define. You've heard this language, right? Uh, we, we create our own identity. We, we, we put our own identity out in social media. We, we try and figure out who, who we are, who we want to be, and we present that. We determine our own purpose. We have to find our own meaning, our own satisfaction. Uh, that is very much a, a modern idea, that we are autonomous, that each one of us uh, is self-defining. The fruit of that is twofold. On the one hand, many, many people today live under the tremendous weight, the tremendous pressure that comes with this, this perceived responsibility to define who they are, to find their purpose, to find their meaning, to find satisfaction. And, and young people, particularly, feel this incredible pressure and in, what if I screw up? What if I get it wrong? And there's just this weight to autonomously, that is on your own, figure out life and determine who you are, your identity, all these things. So on the one hand, it's not only young people, but certainly it's prevalent among young people. Many of you would feel that, that weight. Who am am I? Who do I want to be? How do I do this? Where do I find meaning and purpose? But on the other hand, this mindset fosters a decidedly anti-biblical, anti-Christian attitude. Because it leads us to come to Jesus, not because Jesus is, is, is real or true or the gospel is true, what the Bible says is true. We don't, we don't come to him for that. We, we come to Jesus because Jesus can help us in our quest to self-figure out our identity and to find meaning and purpose. And you say, well, what's the difference? Here it is. See, if, if we come to Christ because Christ can be helpful in our sense of trying to determine who we are, that's different than coming to Christ because Christ is King of kings and Lord of lords, because what the Bible says about him is true. Because, see, if I come to Christ because Christ can be helpful to me as I try and self-define, I'm coming to Christ because he's helpful to me, and I can take or leave certain things. Right? I, I take what's helpful, and I leave what I don't perceive will help me in my quest to define myself. Whereas if we come to Christ because we encounter Christ and the truth that He has proclaimed, the truth proclaimed in Scripture, then we come to Christ, King of kings, Lord of lords, and we surrender. And we say, Jesus, uh, it's not for me to define who I am. It's not for me to define my purpose, my meaning, my satisfaction. I come to You. I surrender to You. You are the determiner of those things. And so that makes an enormous difference. We don't use Jesus to accomplish what we are aiming to do. We surrender to Jesus and we let Him lead us in the life that He is calling us to live. We don't determine our identity, our purpose, our direction. Jesus does. We don't live as an autonomous self shaped by our own individual desires. We surrender to Jesus, our Savior, our Lord, our King, God of gods, Lord Almighty, do not be conformed to the pattern of this world. How is this world shaping us? How's the water? Are we paying attention? Are we even giving thought to the ways in which this world is influencing us in ways that are anti-biblical and anti-Christian? Paul says those things are antithetical to the Christian life. Do not be conformed by the patterns of this world, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Our minds are renewed through God's Word, through surrendering ourselves to Jesus. Question four. What is the context of the Christian life? In verse four, we encounter another metaphor by Paul that he uses. He he writes this, For just as each of us has one body with many members, and these members do not all have the same function, so in Christ we, though many, form one body, And each member belongs to all the others. Each member belongs to all the others. This passage launches a radical assault on the thinking of our present culture. The Christian life is, by necessity, from the lips of Jesus, it is a life in community, in relationships with one another. God is not in the business of populating heaven with a bunch of individuals. He is forming a people, a family. There simply is no such thing, biblically speaking, as a lone ranger Christian. It's a complete oxymoron. In Christ, we, though many, form one body. A body is comprised of many parts, different parts, different functions, but parts of one body, connected, joined together, united Paul is contending that the Christian life, that the Christians he's writing to in Romans, that they are together one body, that in Christ we are inescapably joined to one another. That we are together in a word that together is a word that we need to take to heart, that we are together in Christ. The church is not a place where you, as an individual, come to get your spiritual needs met. The consumerist impulse of our culture has shaped the church too, right? We, we look for what, where, where can my needs be met? Where can I get what I'm shopping for? The church is not a place where we come to get our spiritual needs met. It, it is a body. It is the community of God's people. Yes, we have needs met there because we come and, and others serve and love and care for us in ways that we need and we in turn are to use the gifts of the Spirit the ways in which the Spirit of God manifests Himself in us to love and serve and care for others to pour our lives out for one another because we belong to one another that idea that we belong to one another is such an offense to the messages of our culture that say it's about you you are the autonomous self you define yourself it's about you That's the water in which we swim. And yet Jesus says here to us through His Word, you are not your own. You belong to me and you belong to my people. You belong to the body. You are a member of it, an important member. And you need others and they need you. We're called together. And and this language of body is is not the only metaphor of belonging, of of being together that we encounter in Scripture. We are family. We are a temple. We are a spiritual house built together. Jesus is the one who defines our identity, and He says that we are united together, that we belong to one another. You are not your own. I am not my own. Yes, we belong to Christ through our faith in Him, and Christ says you belong to one another. So look around. Even those of you online in this season that is so not ideal. But see, being the church, being the people of God is about more than just our gathering on Sunday, whether we're gathering virtually or in person. How do we live as the church? How do we manifest the gifts of the Spirit into one another's lives, loving one another, caring for one another, serving one another? How do we do that throughout the week? How do we live as the body? Because the ways in which the Spirit is at work in you are not only for you. Listen to what Paul explicitly says in 1 Corinthians 12. He says, now to each one the manifestation of the Spirit is given for the common good. God has gifted you. God's Spirit is at work in and through you for the sake of others here in this community. We are a church called together. And we, do, we belong to one another. That's what God is saying to us through His Word. If if we just show up here once a week or online to get our perceived spiritual needs met and then we go off the rest of the week and we do our own thing and live individualistically, separate from everyone, we're, we're being unfaithful to Christ. We're being unfaithful to who Christ says we are. We are His body. We are joined together. He's gifted us. His Spirit is at work in us for the common good, for the good of others. We belong to Him and to one another, and we're called to care for, to love, to serve one another. Perhaps some of you are familiar with the author Anne Rice. She's the author of the Vampire Chronicles. She, after she wrote that as an adult, she was converted and became a follower of Jesus. A decade later, she wrote these sad words. For those who care, and I understand if you don't, today I quit being a Christian. I'm out. I I remain committed to Christ as always, but not to being a Christian or being a part of Christianity. It's simply impossible for me to belong to this quarrelsome, hostile, disputatious, and deservedly infamous group. For ten years I've tried. I've failed. I'm an outsider. My conscience will allow nothing else. And... Rice loves Jesus, but she's quit the church. She's become so disillusioned that she's walked away from the church. She's not the only one. There are many who are disillusioned with the church. And not only are there those who are disillusioned, some have been hurt, and many today simply show up or... You know, they, they use the church to try and get their perceived spiritual needs met, but, but we're not experiencing life as the body that Christ wants, that Christ has called us to. And life in community, newsflash, life in community will be messy because we are a gathering, a body of broken men and women, sinners who stand in need of grace. And so let's live under no pretension that we will get this right and it will all be lovely and beautiful. But nonetheless, Christ calls us to community. And, and we, we dare not be so, become so disillusioned that we walk away. We, we need to, to lean into what Christ is calling us to. We need to invite God's Spirit to work in us, to form us to be a community that is growing in what Christ calls us to. He connects us. He makes us one. Closer in relationships with one another is is not merely a phrase on our bulletin. It's not just something we say, oh, this is part of our vision. Closer in relationships is what Jesus calls us to. It's what Jesus wants to accomplish in us. He, He wants to form us into a community that is growing to love one another, to forgive one another, to find ways to live in unity together where there's diversity, that we'd serve one another, that we'd pour out ourselves for one another, that we'd, we'd get our eyes off of ourselves and say, I don't belong to me. It's not for me to, to autonomously self-define. I belong to my brothers and sisters. I belong to this community. Christ has, has died and made me, brought me into union with him and union with his church. So what would it look like if we really embrace that call, what would it look like if we leaned into that, despite our hurts, despite those experiences where we are disillusioned, that we would say, I, I'm, not, I'm not coming as a consumer. I'm, I'm not coming just to try and get my needs met and then I'm going to go live my, my life this week. No, I am a part, an integral member of this body. I am part of this body. The Spirit of God is working in me for the sake of others and in others for the sake of me and others. That we need one another, that we, we are called to grow in our relationships with one another, that this would become, though not perfect, though it will be messy and difficult at times, that we would become a community where there's love and grace and care, and that, that a watching world would see, and that they'd be drawn to Jesus. That we would faithfully be, that we would faithfully lean into what He desires, what He how he defines us, that we are his body. On the night he was betrayed, Jesus said to his disciples, a new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. Brothers and sisters, may we all lean into what Jesus is calling us to May we recognize the ways in which we are being conformed to the pattern of this world. May we repent of those. May we come to Jesus not to use Him, but to surrender before Him. May we invite Him to pour out His Spirit in us and in our community that He would shape us to be men and women, young and old, who would grow close to one another in love and grace and mercy and service. That we would see how massive the change is that that coming to Christ isn't just coming to Christ, it's coming into community. Our lives would be utterly transformed by Him, for Him, and for His people. Amen.